In terms of balance, I think what is important at any age is learning and being open to learning new things. I find that very joyful. Welcome, everybody. My name is Haresh Singhani. This is Conversations with Haresh. We'll be talking to people of varied backgrounds, covering various topics. I'm very excited to be able to share these with you. The goal is to increase curiosity and empathy amongst all of us to help us grow professionally and personally at all levels. And of course, we also want to make sure that this is fun. So thank you again, and we we'll look forward to having you. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Haresh. Today, we'll be talking with Roz Solomon. She has a very interesting career in law as well as working with nonprofits. And one of the aspects of this conversation we'll get into is her latest nonprofit work, helping people with a record reintegrate into society. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you for making time for this. We're happy to have you. Hi. We're going to, as I mentioned earlier, spend some time talking about your journey in life professionally, etc. Some successes, some failures, how they've kind of mapped to your happiness and growth, and then give you an opportunity to ask me a few questions and also parting thoughts. So thank you for being available again, Raz. If you want to give us a quick introduction, I know you're involved in a lot of different activities, but one of the biggest ones is to work with ex-prisoners and helping them get reintegrated into society as productive members, again, kind of, you know, helping them be productive for themselves, but also be productive for society at large. But I'm sure you can do, you can add a lot more to that. So tell us what you're doing right now and anything else you wish to tell us to, so we can learn. Great. Well, first, thanks for having me. So I would say in terms of professional background, my life goes back to a legal career. And I was in the legal field for 20 years, and I was a corporate lawyer. I did that for about seven years. I call that my seven lean years. I was a litigator, mostly. It was really not what I wanted to be doing, actually, at all. And I didn't understand at the time why I was so unhappy. I I came to that understanding later. Um, And then I worked as an administrative law judge. I felt that, well, if I didn't like litigating, at least I could be the neutral party in between two disputing parties. And uh, that was fine for a while. But Oh, as a judge, of course. Yeah, if you're working as a judge, you're not trying to help the two parties settle their dispute. You're actually uh, ruling for one side or the other. So it's a zero-sum game. One side wins, the other side loses. And um, that was okay for a while, but as you may know, in the United States, working as a judge um, means that you have to not be related to the parties, have no you know, personal stake in the outcome, and you meet with them and hear their case, and then you never see them again. And the facts of some of the cases were interesting, but it's a very disengaged way to be with people. And so I, it got to be boring. And so I would take leaves and do other things. And one of the things I did do during that time, and this was way back in ancient history in the 90s, I had a law show online and it was called Solomon's Law. That was, oh, wow. that was pretty funny. Okay. That was back back in the olden days. Showbiz, showbiz veteran. Showbiz veteran, showbiz veteran. And then um, also I taught pre-trial litigation strategy. So that's what we call discovery in the law, depositions, inter- interrogatories, that kind of thing. But I was never particularly happy doing that work. And so I eventually left the legal practice altogether and decided to put more time into what had been my volunteer activity up until then, which was serving on different boards and working with the different nonprofit organizations. And it was a very interesting thing to do because I was mid-career, right? So I was in my mid-40s and I was actually pretty comfortable and good at what I did. I had no I didn't realize it until I tried to start over and starting over and not being very good at what I was doing felt very strange at first. I tried a lot of different things and basically I interned for a number of different organizations. I eventually um, met up with two guys who were interested in starting a business trade association. And that was interesting for me because it was the first time I ever really worked with entrepreneurs and they are a different breed because as a lawyer, you know, I was trained to be very risk adverse and risk aware. And mm-hmm. entrepreneurs are the opposite. They're very opportunity aware, very maybe even, you know, 
find excitement from the risk. So that was a different approach. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting way to describe entrepreneurs it, it, being opportunity aware because um, sometimes it, <laughs> they give the impression they're just risk lovers. Right. Well, at least they're, they're so focused on the opportunity that the risk, although Absolutely. they may appreciate it or see it, it doesn't stop them. Whereas if, as an attorney, you're, you're so focused on the risk that you often put the brakes on opportunity, right? right? So it's a, it was a totally different mindset. It's actually led to a completely different way of thinking and being in the world. So if you're not coming from a risk mitigation perspective, but you're coming from a, what are the opportunities as opposed to the risks, you have a completely different mindset. It's a different worldview. And it was initially very surprising and, and shocking to me. Doing that work for the trade association, which was called the Washington Business Alliance, I met many entrepreneurs and many people in business and came to see how that type of worldview, not only did it put a spotlight on opportunity, but it also meant that things could get done relatively quickly. And that was a completely different experience for me as well. And I really enjoyed it and came to understand that if I had been exposed to that point of view earlier in life, and I think, given my age, if I had been born male, I probably would have become entrepreneurial myself much earlier. Because the idea of starting up, creating something from nothing is, I think, one of the most, you know, it's very creative and it's a very exciting thing to do, to actually manifest something out of nothing. I'm curious why you believe that being male would have made a difference. Well, at the time I was raised, I was encouraged, I think, as a female to be more conservative and more concerned about stability and more concerned about being sure of my financial prospects. Also, I didn't have that sort of deep sense of confidence that entrepreneurs must have, that ability to go out and fail and then, you know, pick yourself up and try again. I think to me, failure was the most, it was horrific. The idea of failing meant that life itself was over. That put me in a position where being a lawyer made some sense, right? Risk adverse. So I think those were traits. And when I speak to a lot of my women friends from my generation, we often, you know, we feel the same. We were encouraged to join organizations, not to start them. And then, you know, just sort of move up the chain. And do you think the geography could have made any difference where you were? I don't know. I mean, I was on the West Coast and that tends to be a place that's more amenable. Yeah. I mean, it's more amenable to, to, I think, to entrepreneurship actually than the East Coast is. Although I went to college back East. But what came out of starting a trade association and running it was sort of two desires. And I don't know if we should just go right into failures and success, but I came to understand after that experience what my most significant failure was. And I think there were, well, there were two that stood in my way that I came to understand after that experience. One was the fear of speaking truth to power, which I, you know, I was raised with lots of, you know, respect for authority and, you know, the whole idea, you can imagine a legal field and working with judges and, and that sort of thing. I was very much in that realm. I never asked why I should jump, but only how high. And as a result, if somebody wasn't very compassionate or let's say very understanding in their way, it was easy for them to take advantage of me. And that happened over and over again in my life because I was constantly just, well, maybe if I just try a little bit harder this time, they'll be satisfied. But of course, that isn't how it works. So that was one thing I learned was that I had to figure out what I wanted to jump for and how high I wanted to jump and how I wanted other people who worked with me to feel. What did an organization look like that would really, that would align with my own values? So that was one thing I learned. And then the other thing I learned was that my ego was getting in the way. In the Western culture, you know, we're raised to be very egocentric. You know, we want to be rich and famous. We want to be number one. It's our way or the highway. If you're not winning, you're losing. And that makes it very hard to find solutions and creatively work with others. It, it always has to look or be for your benefit. You have to always look good if you're always trying to self-promote. And so the ego puts you in a position where potential creativity and opportunities, you can't see them, or if you see them, you can't really effectively pursue them. So getting over myself. Would you have an example or two in terms of, and uh, uh, may not, but- I do. Where there could be an opportunity, but me being egocentric, I can't capitalize on it 
because of that. Is there an example that comes to mind? Yes. So when I talk about failure and success, I would say that for me to be successful meant overcoming those two things. Stop jumping for people in positions of authority and thinking about what is in the best interests of an organization, not what's in my best interest or what's going to make me look good along with the mission. You referred earlier to the organization that I helped co-found called What's Next Washington. I started that with um, my co-founder who was formerly incarcerated. There were two or three different ideas there. One was she had never completed, she had no post-secondary education. She had completed high school. She'd gotten her GED in prison. We came from very different worlds and realities. My desire was to actually really put my values into operation, implement them in a way that felt real to me. I didn't want to just keep going to lovely lunches and writing a check. I wanted to actually see what did it mean if you worked side by side with the very people you wanted to help and didn't act like you were their better or their superior, but actually saw them as a colleague, as a peer. And to the extent to which they needed assistance that I could provide to create that peer-to-peer relationship, that meant putting my ego aside because I could easily have controlled everything, right? I had the keys to the kingdom. I know how the system works just because of my background in the law. I had connections in the community, both you know business community and nonprofit communities. I knew how to raise money. So I had those networks and connections. And I just had the ability to move in certain circles where I felt comfortable that my co-founder, Sue, just, she didn't have. She'd never learned it. And I just got it through osmosis. So I had all those things and I could have lorded that over her. But instead, what I did was I handed it over to her. So I showed her, this is what you do. This is how it is. When you enter a room like this, pretend you're going to Japan and there's a different culture and you want people to hear you and they will not be able to hear you if you don't abide by certain etiquette when you walk into the room. If you're in Japan, you would bow. Hear how you do it is this way. Watch me. So I would show her how to do it. And then I would more and more and more hand it over to her. Initially, I would say, okay, we're going to have this meeting with this person. Why are we meeting with this person? What's our outcome? And I would talk to her about what I thought the outcome should be. And then later I would say, she would set the outcome. She would set the meetings. And we would go in initially, I would do all the talking and she would listen. Later, she would do the talking. I would listen. So it was a very intentional sort of switching up of roles. Ego won't let you do that all the time because I was literally giving up power in those settings. And I was choosing to do that because my values were that I really wanted to empower people to have a decent life and to have lives of dignity. And if I was going to do that, given what tools and skills I had, I had to be willing to give them away. Sharing power, a system and our culture tells us we must not do. And yet, once you share power, what I found was that my co-founder, she may not have had the education and she may not have had some of the skill sets I had because of all the training, was that she was outside the box and she came in with these amazing ideas, really creative ideas. And sometimes I would have to sit back and say, where did you get that idea? She came from this other place and it was because I didn't need to be in charge and because we could allow the ideas to then flow. She would come with these great ideas, and but I had the skill set to know how we might implement them. And I would talk to her about, well, I think we could implement it this way. It didn't have to be my idea to be a good idea. Any idea was a good idea if it was a good idea, you know? So I think that stops people, right? If it's idea they can't that limits what they can hear and what they can do yeah there's all kinds of drivers as far as why i want to have control or maintain control uh sometimes i i might think that it equates to financial gain accordingly right so if i'm in control i should in theory probably gain the most financially maybe i don't think somebody else is competent enough or i do have that fear of not being in control there's also kind of a vote of confidence that you need to have in the other person or the other people in your team because sometimes you're prepared to give up control maybe but maybe you don't feel the other team members are ready to take it at the level that they need to so that the mission still stays intact it's intuitive in a way some of that oh absolutely i mean i'm not necessarily saying that your approach doesn't have merit i was just thinking through some of my past experiences either for myself or other co-founders or partners on different efforts as to what might have 
led to people less being able to share control or give up control. I mean, ego and control are double-edged swords, at least in the way kind of I've seen or experienced them, right? It, it, having some of it becomes the source or can become the source of your driver. What drives you? Oftentimes, many entrepreneurs, they're inspired by people who told them, you will never be able to do that. Whatever it is that their idea was or their vision was, they go to like two people or 20 people and every one of them like, Harash, that's never going to happen. Or even more personal, I never see you getting to that level of success. Maybe slightly different words. And then that becomes, if I have an ego that feels hurt at the time, it can become a huge driver. It's like a powerful tool. It can go either way, constructive, destructive, and a lot of damage in between. Right. It can be very constructive. I guess the issue is when, and I think for my co-founder, Sue, it was a powerful driver because I was the first person who ever said to her, oh, you can do this. Let me show you how. Because she believed she could not. And everyone told her she could not. And so I do think it's a driver, but I think it's a driver to what end? For me, the driver was, what's our mission? If really good ideas come from her, that's fine with me. I don't care where the ideas come from. It's our success as opposed to my success or her success. But I do see what you're saying in terms of being motivated. And I think that that motivation is a positive side, I guess, of ego. But the thing that happened so often for me was I saw the negative side where my way is the right way because I'm successful and I know better. It's like, well, actually, may or may not, you know. But um, I was born in India and I, and I lived in India till I was 13 and then I came to Seattle in the 80s. And in India, it's even, there's a cultural nuance besides ego nuance, which is universally human in some ways. There's a higher level of deference to your seniors, right? That is expected or given as well as it also goes in terms of chauvinism or misogyny, right? The men also get more authority or control or ownership in decision-making in life, in all kinds of decisions. Like you have to work even harder to make everybody in the team feel comfortable contributing, right? Or taking leadership of different areas and say, oh, you can do this. You can probably do it better than I can. Sometimes like, I know you can do it better than I can, right? This is very interesting. And it's a very unique perspective because oftentimes people look at, you know, this is my mission, this is my vision, and I want to go do it. This shows up a lot of times in our experience at High Tech Advisors, which is my advising team, where we work with startups and they either have co-founders or they're potentially needing or looking for co-founders, then it's like, okay, what level of openness do you have to engage somebody as a partner, right? Bringing that person into your vision and then in whatever corporate vehicle you might have set up or are thinking about setting up, whether it's a you know C Corp, LLC, B Corp, etc. What ends up happening is that you get it stuck in this chicken and egg problem, which is until I can trust somebody, I'm not willing to let go. But then I don't know if I can trust them until I have had some level of history and vice versa. They don't know if they can trust me until we've kind of had that history, right? What is it going to lead you to both of you want to invest the time, effort, energy to create the history? And then they're like, well, I need trust. <laughs> so you're stuck. And so sometimes referrals can be great help. I know this person, they're about XYZ. And then I know this other person, they're also about XYZ. Maybe I should connect them. And then if they both have some level of familiarity, trust in whatever I've done or said in the past, then that may help them kind of bridge that trust gap or credibility gap faster. No, I think that's a really good point. There was a point where sometimes I just had to take a leap of faith. I didn't know if Sue was ready or not. And sometimes she wasn't. And I would let her take charge and she would blow it. And I just had to be at peace with that. I remember at one point I was talking to my husband about this and I was really fuming about something that she had done that was really wrong, in my opinion, just like professionally, just completely ridiculous and had made a mess of it of a really good situation. And he turned to me and said, well, you could work with a bunch of other lawyers and, you know, avoid all this. <laughs> It's like, right, like, why am I doing this work? You know, the other person may screw up in, in from your perspective, but you still have to keep taking the leap of faith and you have to keep then having the conversation. You know, I didn't think that situation worked out well. Sue would sometimes say, I thought it was great. I was like, no, let me explain to you what is the problem. <laughs>
And you both could be right, actually, too. We both could be right. Then we needed to have that open conversation where I had to be open to her perspective and she had to be open to mine. It's not easy, but it was a choice that we both made. And I think when people make that choice, the potential success can be much greater and the creativity can be much greater. But it's hard to come into a situation like that. I mean, mostly we come into situations very guarded, very defensive, very worried that we're going to give something away. Gladwell, I think it's the book, right? Talking to Strangers. I'm not sure if you've read it. I think I watched a talk on it or he talked about it, right? But the evolutionarily, we're programmed to trust, actually. As much as there's a lot of cynicism and polarization in our society and apprehension, towards trusting. It turns out that evolutionarily, you're better off doing trust and verify than verify than and trust. So first, you by default, we trust. And then when you collect the evidence to the contrary, then you start going into preservation mode, right? Keep from getting hurt mode. And so as much as, um, you know, we might believe otherwise, the, the default assumption for humans is to, is to trust actually or the default mode. But I think when it comes to big things, I'm not sure if I'm saying it the right way, but like when I go down the street, either as a pedestrian or as a driver, I'm going to trust that the other driver is going to stay on the right side of the street. I have to, otherwise I could never drive one mile. Right. I mean, we can't function as a society, right? We have to trust that the air traffic control person is going to lead our airplane landing. When something's more consequential, then I'm much more guarded or I can be much more guarded, like running a company, running a team, building a team. I mentioned briefly, you mentioned it a couple of times in between, what this organization is about. So do you want to give us a kind of a quick intro as to what the organization does? And kind of one of the things I, I'm not sure if we covered it, which is how you both met and decided to work together? We met because I was volunteering for another organization that was run by a friend of mine, and she had got me involved in it called Civil Survival. And it was an organization for people who had criminal records. And I had never worked with people like that before. And I knew nothing really very... I took a criminal law course in law school as required, but I really didn't know much about criminal law. And I met my co-founder, Susan Mason, there. She was working there. And she and I started doing some projects together. And we really enjoyed working together, really liked each other. And it was interesting for me because I had never really spent time with somebody who, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say this, but who wasn't from my socioeconomic educational background, right? You're not alone. We're more segregated now than probably ever. Right. And so... To me, I'd always had a problem with, as I said earlier in the podcast, about just, you know, writing a check at lunch and moving on, you know, going to these fundraisers. And that was my engagement. So for serving on boards, which I did a lot of nonprofit boards, I really wanted to be more, as they say, Brian Stevenson says, be in proximity. So I wanted to be in proximity to actually really put myself next to and with people who were suffering in our society and see the world from a completely different perspective. By just a quick backup, if you want to be successful, you have to also figure out what is it that you want to do and what your values are and principles are that you want to abide by in your life. They're kind of like your North Star. So for me, the North Star was wanting to contribute to make the world a better place and to do it in a way that was personal, that put myself on the line. So I met Sue and we started working together. And in fact, early on, and you and I just talked about this recently, high-tech advisors helped us quite a bit because we were trying to figure out what is the niche that we could fit in into sort of the criminal justice reform ecosystem that wouldn't be duplicative. And we thought that there were plenty of organizations doing good work, but what was it that we could do that was a gap. What we ended up doing was focusing on Sue's personal experience, which was the experience of applying for jobs and being given offers subject to a background check and then having those job offers rescinded over and over and over again. And so the thought was, let's work with employers. And that was something that high-tech advisors really helped us focus in on because we had thought, well, maybe we should be bringing nonprofits together in this space so that we're all collaborating. But what we found was all these sort of ego-based turf wars. Nobody was interested in sharing anything. But as soon as we started 
going to employers and sitting down with them and saying, look, somebody like Sue is actually an exemplary employee. What's going on? So we started doing that work and started looking at what were the factors that were keeping employers from hiring talent. And what we found was they were afraid, which makes sense. They were fearful. Some of them had been victims of crime. They were scared because of media and what they saw in the news and on TV. It just was easier for them to disregard people with that background. But it was becoming harder and harder for employers because so many so many people in the baby boom generation were starting to retire. Then the you know, pandemic made it worse, right? So many people have not gone back into the workforce in the same way. So suddenly we could say to employers, look, this is a talent pool. Even though you're afraid, you know, it turns out that the data show us that this population of people tend to be more loyal, tend to work harder, tend to be very resilient and creative on the job. In fact, they are just the person you want on your team. For many employers, as we showed them the data and explained what the case really was, they were shocked. It seemed shocking to them. We also talked to them in language that they understood. So I did a lot of work in employment law. So I understood, for example, that employers need to reasonably accommodate people with disabilities or with issues. So we talked to them using the language of accommodation. The idea was we didn't go to employers and say, you know, you're a bunch of jerks. Start hiring people, you know, and lecture them. Somebody attacks you, you're going to defend yourself. So we came in and said, look, we've all got a problem. You need talent. And here's this pool of people who need jobs. Let's talk. To this point, one thing that I remember, I know this was five, six years ago when, when we went through this exercise. I don't remember the exact number, but I remember this point, which is if you were to ask the average person, how many percent of the general population, what percentage of the general population do you think has a record? Probably the lay person would say 2%, 5% or something like that. Yeah, actually, you know what? Huge. It's huge in this country. Right? So I was like, it's kind of like, you know, um, there's a, the, in the in the tech circles or product circles, there's this domain called accessibility. And you might be familiar with that because it's also a big deal in legal parlance. And what happened is I used to work with a gentleman. He's an accessibility expert from Australia. He had an interesting personal journey. He wanted to be a software engineer, but he's legally blind, right? As it turned out, when he decided to become a software engineer, there was no practical way for a blind person to become a software engineer. How would they be taught the concepts that they would need to learn was the first obstacle, right? And what was interesting in some of those conversations was that if I ask you, instead of saying, okay, how many people do you think has a record? If I instead ask you, Raz, how many people do you think would have a disability that would need some accessibility set of features in products or services or locations or venues? And you might say 2% or 5%. It's like, because you'd be like, okay, how many people do I see in wheelchairs? How many people do I see with a cane? How many people do I see with a white cane, right, that might have visual impairments? And how many people do I see that have hearing impairments and so on? I probably would come up with 2% or 5% or something like that, right? And that number, and not counting the super elderly, some point all of us will have disability if we live long enough, right? It's a huge number. It's like it's like 20 or 40%. A lot of the disabilities or the impairments will have also are temporary because of injury, whether it's due to a single injury or chronic conditions, right? Because you wear out your knee over time because you've got osteoarthritis and stuff like that. What you realize is that accessibility is not a problem for a small set of people. It's actually an everybody problem. On top of this high percentage of people that experience it, you start adding like, okay, am I likely to be a family member of somebody who's likely to experience it? Then you virtually probably are at 100% population. Similarly, with the ex-con or a former prisoner statistics, I remember hearing from your team, it was like really high compared to what I would have guessed. And then the second thing also is that our record is pretty bad in the U.S. with regards to basically throwing away humans after they are convicted for whatever reason, right, for great offenses or small offenses or whatever, right? And so the talent pool implications are huge of not doing all we can as a society to get all these people that have suffered through or 
bad incidents happen in their lives or crimes that they've committed to get them back on the right track. It's actually good business and good economics. Although in, in this society, of course, we've got the prison industrial complex that doesn't want any, wants to keep those those cells full. I would say just a quick little aside, we like to use a little bit of different language so we call people with conviction histories or people living with a record, formerly incarcerated talent, which is you came up with, or just those kinds of words, because you don't refer to me as a person with a high school degree, because that's not all of who I am. And so when we think of people who've been to prison or have a conviction on their record, it's not all of who they are. So we don't use words like ex-cons or felons because that pigeonholes somebody in a way that's really not appropriate because they might also be a journeyman iron worker and a, a father or a minister or all these other things. So that piece of who they are is not all of who they are. Your other point is really well taken. So you know, of the people who have who are incarcerated in the United States, a certain number of them are mentally ill and maybe will never be able to be uh, rehabilitated in the sense that they become taxpaying working members of society. But most people, about 80% of them who have been to prison or who have a record of some kind are very hardworking and want to become members of the community. You were talking about numbers. By 2030, the Department of Justice, U.S. Department of Justice, estimates that there will be about 100 million working adults with a conviction history. So we're 350 million people in the United States. A number of those people are children, so they're not working adults. A number of those people are retired, so they're not working adults. So if we start to pare that number down to, let's say, 200 million people, that is 50% of the popu- of the working age population with a conviction history. So yes, the number is huge. And so we cannot, as a society, function if we are going to either not hire those people or not allow them to progress up through their careers, either within an existing organization or to become entrepreneurs on their own. So we do need a completely different mindset. And happily, the data supports us. And I'll give you a story. We had these meetings, these big sessions with employers, especially pre-COVID. And one of them, we were specifically targeting the hospitality and restaurant industry. And we had the executive chef attending from a very well-known exclusive club in downtown Seattle. He listened to our conversation. And one of the things we talked to him about was accommodating people who have potentially on probation and, and parole. And what they needed from the employer. And he went back to his kitchen after our session and he sat down with four of the people who he knew had prison background and asked them each, what can I do to accommodate you and your probation requirements? So one of them said, look, you know, I'm late every once a month on Tuesday mornings because I've got to go to an anger management class at 630 in the morning. So I I can't make it here by 830. And he said, okay, we'll have your shift start at eight that day and we'll have so-and-so fill in for the first half hour. So he did this with each of the four people. Later that day, one of them came up to him and said, I have hope for the first time in my life. Those four workers became his best staff. And after that, as openings came up, he started hiring other people who had a conviction in their past. And he ended up building this resilient, loyal team like no other restaurant had in the Seattle area. He invited me over to talk about it anytime we wanted. He said, you know, I'll come and speak wherever you want and tell people what my experience has been because it's nobody's committing crimes on the job. Everybody is dedicated to me and to this place because I'm accommodating what they need. Sounds like a very worthwhile endeavor. Obviously, a lot more of us should know about this. I know you guys are merging with a larger organization. So it's Mission Launch. It's based in Baltimore, Maryland. So as Mission Launch, we are going to be hosting a convening in Seattle in late September. And I'd be happy to give you more info about that as the details become clearer. But it's a, we're going to be putting on a, a session where we are bringing together people in the corporate world, public sector, and nonprofit sector to talk about some of the employment issues that people with conviction histories are facing and come up with some really interesting and actionable solutions. I want to switch a little bit. We appreciate you going through a fairly 
detail, I guess, not just the introduction, but kind of what you're involved in now and what success looks like. I'll jump to the last part. Uh, we mentioned a couple of times some of the things as far as what you learned from failures and some of the failures as you and Sue were collaborating. The last part of the conversation is how what you're doing and not just professionally or what you've been doing more recently professionally and in general what you're doing to balance other factors of life and creating happiness for yourself, creating the experience of life more rewarding, right? <laughs> so you earlier alluded to the fact that you started out in law and then it wasn't quite creating satisfaction or it wasn't rewarding enough until you ended up switching gears and uh, started working with entrepreneurs and then eventually, in a way, being an entrepreneur. How hard do you end up working now? Is it a pretty intense role? Do you have a lot of time and energy left for other things? Uh, what's meaningful and how are you achieving happiness with balance? Well, I would say that it was very intense. <laughs> I think any entrepreneurial endeavor, whether for-profit or non-profit, is pretty intense when you're doing a startup. Now, since the merger, I'm going on the board of the national organization. And so my actual level of work is less. And that is fine. In terms of balance, I think what is important at any age is learning and being open to learning new things. I find that very joyful. So I am I'm very interested in learning about things like physics and medicine. And I'm very interested in sort of looking at life from this perspective of values and integrity and what does it mean to live a life of integrity? How do you every day live in alignment with yourself, actually? And how do you not take things too seriously? Because really there's very little that's actually that serious. Finding a way to remain as calm within yourself, I think, as possible and at peace. So those are the things that I'm really interested in now. And I think some of that comes from learning, comes from not taking yourself too seriously. Do you partake in some of the spiritual traditions or meditation practices, or do you have a physical kind of or workout or activity routine, you know, sports of different kinds, hiking, etc. What are the pieces that are involved that don't involve active learning or active reading or talking to people? So I'd say there are two things or three things that are really important. Rigorous exercise, which has been something I have done all my life, starting when I was in college, and I've maintained more or less throughout my life. And I think that is really important. And I noticed that when I exercise pretty vigorously, I just feel so much better and I'm so much clearer. A lot of people, a lot of friends like, well, I, I go walking for five miles, which is great. But for me, it has to be very intense, very hard workout. So I do, I used to be a runner. Um, now I do a lot of spin during the pandemic. You know, I got myself a Peloton and, and I do that pretty regularly and pretty hard. Um, I also do weight training. So those things are really vital. I think meditation is really important. And to the extent to which I meditate, it's sort of in a, I guess you'd say Buddhist tradition. I follow or am involved in an organization called Authentic Leadership in Action, ALIA. Really, that's all about this idea of how do you be a leader where you put the mission first, not your ego first, where you put ideas and wisdom first from the community and how you then can help implement that wisdom or that those ideas. So I would say that that's another very important part of what I became involved in around the time I was also starting West Next Washington was also thinking very thoughtfully about what does it mean to create a leadership organization where everyone is understood to be fully human and everyone is valued and everyone is encouraged to contribute. Being a leader doesn't mean you're better. It just means you're serving a different role. And it's a role of where you're facilitating and enabling everyone else to achieve their best. Where you said before, you, you trust first, and then if someone doesn't perform, you don't excuse that. It's not, it's not as if that's okay. You know, people have to perform, but you enable them to perform as much as you possibly can before closing the door on that person. Because if it isn't a good fit, it's not a good fit. That kind of leadership is so different from the leadership that I first encountered when I entered the large law firm and as an attorney where I was litigating, where it was a zero-sum game all the time. It was completely different from the leadership that I have now come to embrace. So those 
kinds of engagements have been important. So the exercise, the meditation, and then my participation in, in Alia. And there are many different kinds of groups out there. Well, it's been great speaking with you. I had mentioned we can turn the tables. You can definitely ask me some questions, and uh, I'm not sure if I should be nervous. It's been great, though, learning about your journey and where you're at and kind of how you're achieving balance and happiness. What can I answer for you? <laughs> Why are you interested in gathering this information from different people? There's several motivations. One is over the years, I've had similar conversations just like you and I have had in the past, but I was hoping that you know, they could be captured and potentially provide some value to other people down the road, whether it's some people that may be earlier in their careers or earlier in their lives, and they might get a pointer or two from these kinds of conversations. Because some of the things that we're discussing are lessons learned, and so that can cut down on other people's learning time. The second thing is, hopefully, some of these conversations, especially the guests such as yourself and others who've accomplished different kinds of things, can serve as an inspiration for other people that might be in the audience. Over the years, in, after having similar conversations, many people have remarked that it would be good if there was a way to disseminate that content for these kinds of purposes to basically share with other people who are either entrepreneurs or their corporate leaders or their nonprofit leaders. And there might be some pointers that they might get with regards to how to make those efforts successful, also how to achieve balance so that they're not just burning themselves out in those efforts and so on. In some ways, it's my attempt also at preserving some of the things that I've been involved in so that they could be around and helpful, not just when I'm around, but if I'm not around or where I'm not physically available. So this is an early stage. I might have a better response for you after I've been at it for a while as to what has been the outcome and how it has compared to potentially with what I might expect from the beginning. I mean, I appreciate the generosity of doing this with me. Well, I think it's interesting that you want to do this because I think that's unusual in a lot of the tech entrepreneurial world. It does seem, from my perspective anyway, to be more dog-eat-dog -dog and everyone sort of competing to get ahead. One of the things is that most of my learning probably, and it's probably true for most of us still now, you know, chat GPT and BART and everything might change that, but we learn from other humans. There are thankfully a lot of, even you know, entrepreneurs and tech people that are also doing podcasts and other kind of speaking or disseminating of experiences and expertise and content out there. What I've found is that people are typically, they've been very generous whether they come from tech domains or otherwise in helping other entrepreneurs or other fellow humans in their professional and leadership or technical or entrepreneurial journeys. Whatever time you spend in such an endeavor, like a podcast, right? In theory, you're not building, you're not coding away and building software or other things that you're supposed to be doing, burning the midnight oil on a daily basis, etc. Also, I think there's a little bit of a cultural difference, as you might expect, in entrepreneurs and tech people, the people in their probably 20s or 30s, they're much more of workaholics. The people such as myself and others who are in their 40s and 50s and even beyond have intensity or they spend their time slightly differently. It's something that I see as fun and I think it could be valuable. Maybe it partly is also due to the culture that I come from back in India at the time when my parents and their parents were alive. We didn't have too many records. Nobody wrote at the time. There's no writings of any of my relatives. There's no letters. There's no books. There's nothing, right? We don't have pictures either. There's no audio. I'm not anticipating this to be a family history or family thing, but it's much broader than that in the sense that whatever our generation or our my contemporaries such as you and others whatever we're thinking feeling exploring and traveling through it could have value to our fellow travelers today but it could also have value for the people who are more junior and then one of the things that i'm appreciating now by the way is um it's interesting when you say that learning is really critical for you as far as achieving contentment or balance or happiness and growth. It is for me as well. I'm a super curious person. Um, learning is an interesting endeavor. It's kind of like there's a map or a, the globe of the earth. And if you think of learning as saying, okay, I'm going to learn this slice or this part of the globe first, and then you go and you learn another part, and then you keep going. And hopefully you have an opportunity if you live long enough to learn a little bit about every part. You're not going to learn in-depth about every part because there won't be enough time. But then you do get an opportunity to learn in-depth about some of the parts. I'm hoping that people, through the sense of empathy 
and extrapolation, even if they don't have the time to learn all the parts, they can at least imagine them at some level, or at least imagine what it might take. And so in my case, if somebody asked me when I was 20-something that, you know, would such a podcast be valuable use of time, I might have said yes, but I probably would have been interested in more STEM topics, science, engineering, technology type of topics. In a way, you and I kind of started in different corners, right? So I, I was a physics student. I wanted to be a physicist. I did study that as an undergraduate, but then I saw that the other people were much, much smarter <laughs> that were studying physics. It happened to be the end of the Cold War in the 90s. The funding was drying up, and a lot of the physicists typically would have been funded by the national government to do research. DARPA and Pentagon in general, I suspected or I, the career prospects were probably going to be not as bright for physicists doing research if the Cold War funding was drying up. And indeed, a lot of those physics students were very, very smart and much more determined, much more hardworking, etc. So I kind of defaulted into engineering instead of physics. I always held science and physics in general in very high regard. So I ended up learning those domains first. But over time, I'm beginning to appreciate the humanities or social sciences or things like history, especially history, a lot more than I did probably when I was more snobbish about, you know, physics and science in the 20s and maybe 30s. The one thing that I encourage or tell people, especially the younger ones who are trying to figure out, okay, you know, I want to start learning. I want to become a lifelong learner, but which corner do I start in? Do I start in a humanities or a social science corner or do I start in STEM, something in STEM, whether it's, you know, math or technology or science or something like that? It's a little bit easier to start there and then go into the other areas. But if you start in like social sciences, you could definitely learn about the sciences but it can be harder because you may not have all the tools that you need to really learn the science domains if you didn't take that up in college where it's a lot more intense training, et cetera. But lately I've been reading Robert Carroll. He wrote five-volume biography of LBJ. He wrote the biography of Robert Moses in New York, uh, which was called The Power Broker and the Fall of New York. Robert Carroll, the author, has done a fantastic job of kind of unearthing and researching and then discovering new information about things that either people didn't know anything about or people, there were like 17 biographies written about LBJ when he started his. He uncovered a whole bunch of new things that actually maybe not just extended, but changed the understanding or uh, information people had on LBJ. And I think it's super valuable. It's really valuable for us to know our history so that we don't repeat it. Who wrote 1984? George Orwell, right? <laughs> Those who controlled the present control the past and those who control the past control the future. So you, you have all these tools, you have highways and you have computers and, and now with machine learning, maybe you'll have even intelligence. But until now, history was, it was a very much a human enterprise and somebody had to sit there and, and carry the work forward. Otherwise, the society will end up probably making a lot more mistakes than it would otherwise. And and so that is just as consequential now that I'm, you know, at this stage, whatever age, as, say, nuclear physics or as, you know, transistors engineering, which is what engineers and physicists were working on historically. Long answers. <laughs> it's a good answer. I agree with you. The problem is also that with history, we erase so much, right? Because those in power don't necessarily like all of their history to be told. And as we start to learn more and explore more, as is the case with the volumes on LBJ, right? Where we really get more into the weeds and really understand more about what was going on. It can only help us. I think that there's this push and pull right now in our society where there's fear of learning about what really happened, let's say in our country with slavery and that type of thing. To me, it's like, I want to learn about it. Because I don't want us to repeat those things. I don't want us to dehumanize people again. You know, so why are we not, you know, absolutely let's learn in all of its depth and all of its detail, even if it's very unpleasant. Unfortunately or fortunately, we're never done in terms of fighting the negative energies that unfortunately resides in all of us. Not to be, uh, I'll pick a religious tradition. I like meditation. I, I'm doing a little bit of yoga to help relieve some of the aches and 
pains and creakiness, uh, <laughs> especially for the knees. I don't have a religious tradition myself, though my family, you know, we were Hindus. Every one of us has good and bad in terms of tendencies or energy. And then at a society level, we definitely have bad actors and good actors. And then there's a lot of gray areas because even when I think I'm doing something that I believe to be 100% good, somebody else might have a different perception or perspective on it. It's another cliche, right? But democracy it takes work every day and not just democracy, but justice takes work every day. The arch of liberty is long, but it bends towards justice, right? Martin Luther King, yeah. But there's, a, there's one more uh, addition, which is that, and it doesn't bend by itself. So just by doing nothing, the world doesn't get better. Just to maintain it from getting or keeping it from being worse, it takes constant input. And then you have to add even more energy to then try to get the arch to bend towards justice or betterment. Yeah, I think the thing is that it reminds me. In order to understand this and to appreciate it and actually to make yourself more useful, what I've come to realize is that the softer fields or the humanities and social sciences are critical. So ultimately, you do need this balance of multiple domains. You need to be aware of them to be able to appreciate and attack these multidimensional societal problems or opportunities, communicating, disseminating your experiences and your thoughts and your kind of cumulative expertise sometimes is helpful, can be helpful. Uh, one of the things that has come up in past conversations with especially junior people or, or slightly more junior people, people who may be in their 20s or 30s that I've talked to or I get to work with or I get to mentor, etc. Most of the people, by the time they're 30 years old after that, when it comes to the human condition, they're not going to learn anything new, right? You meaning you're not, you, you may gather new facts, you're not going to be profoundly faced with any new content that you hadn't seen already, especially if you're a curious mind, you're, you're well-read, etc. By the time you're about 30, 30 plus, the content is going to be the same. So it's kind of like, like going to a church or a temple for fellowship. We don't go to the churches and the temples to discover new truths. You already know what the tenets are, core tenets are of any tradition by the time you're probably five years old maybe 10. After that, there's no new content. You don't go to the temple or the church to learn new content. Why do you go there? You go there for fellowship and you go there for inspiration. In the past, I used to think that in order for me or any one person to be a source of inspiration, that you had to meet a certain quality bar. I think all of us have the potential to inspire others. It's not an ego thing. It's just that each one of our journeys has the potential to be inspirational for people who might get to observe it or witness it, right? And so that's just how every journey is. And so in some ways, I'm putting some of this in the podcast and learning also from your journey and other people's so that maybe it can be something that inspires people or motivates them towards achieving their goals or making them more ambitious. I think that's one of the drivers also for me to try to do this project. And then the rest, we'll see. We'll see what kind of other things come up. Well, I will say that I agree with you. I, I, yeah, I've been inspired by Sue, certainly. You know, she wasn't some accomplished jurist or something. I've been inspired by her journey and who she is. And I've had tremendous insight and learning from her. Everybody has learnings. They have learnings, right? They definitely have learnings. Even if somebody does nothing, but they walk around the block every day. And if you go around the block with them, they'll they'll be like, well, I took a turn here because then it gives me, then I avoid the car that's not visible from, you know, behind the bush. There's no Nobel Prize in that insight or learning, but it's a lifesaver or it could be, right? I know I've kept you here for a while. So thank you. If you have any parting thoughts that you want to share. I am continually open and amazed by what I can learn from other people in their journeys. And so I think it's great that you're doing this project. I appreciate being part of it. So thank you. Oh, certainly. Thank you, Roz. And we'll probably come back and do another one after some time. Okay. See what I've learned next. Maybe it'll be something about quantum physics. You never know. <laughs> yeah, there's lots to learn there. 